1: Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com ACAST. That's Burrow.com ACAST. Burrow.com ACAST.
2: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcarecom loss. That's plushcarecom loss. Fiction.
1: Science
3: fiction.
2: Horror. Fantasy. Crime.
4: FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 105.0 AM Palm Springs.
5: All right, our first reader today is uh, a co-host of the House of Mystery, and uh, he's got a lot of books and a lot of people know him, so uh, Mr. John Copenhaver, and he's reading from Hall of Mirrors, so thank you for being here, John.
6: Thank you, Al. I am looking forward to it. So this doesn't really require much setup since it's the first chapter of Hall of Mirrors, so I'm going to jump right in. It's May 1st, 1954, and the perspective I'm reading from is Lionel. I'm aware of the clear dust sky beyond the smoke. I'm aware of cherry blossoms hanging in the breeze weeks past their peak. I'm aware of our building Spanish colonial revival facade, its tiers and molded ledges and balconies sweeping upward, its demonic grotesques perched on the cornice looming in vain, having failed to ward off evil spirits. Firefighters rushed past me, wearing wide-brimmed helmets, gas masks with trunk-like noses, bulky coats marred with the residue of past fires, and tall boots like fishermen's waders. They grip fire extinguishers and haul limp extra hoses over their shoulders. The polished nozzles glint in the light from the building's lobby entrance. They call out commands and move with extraordinary purpose, giving some order to the chaos. A hook-and-ladder truck, its wheel up over the curb and crushing a fledgling redbud tree, buzzes with commotion. The long, expandable ladder shifts and begins to angle up. The clean faced firefighter at its helm is so intent on the job that he briefly and bizarrely charms me. Not far behind me, distraught neighbors and nosy, babbling pedestrians gather. Parting to see the ambulance crew appear, searching for direction. When I first visited the building, Roger stopped near the spot on the sidewalk, slid his hand across my shoulder, a gesture both thrilling and unsettling in a public space and pointed to the windows along the ninth floor. "'We'll live up there forever, darling,' he said, leaning in, his voice soft, conspiratorial. "'We'll throw parties. We'll sip martinis and watch D.C. blink to life in the evenings, just you and me.' I cracked those windows at his request this morning, to let in the mellow spring air. Now a ribbon of black smoke seeps from those raised sashes, and I'm sure a spot of flame flicker behind the glass. A line of poetry surfaces— his eyes darkened by too great a light. It's from Ovid, I think. A god riding a chariot too close to the sun, blinded by its rays. Perhaps that's it. Roger and I have flown too close and got burned, are burning. Philippa standing beside me, her hand gently touching the back of my arm. An awkward but tender attempt to console me. Judy, not the consoling type, stands a few feet from me. Her arms crossed, her chin up, her dark eyes like twin camera lenses recording it all. Maybe Judy or Philippa mentioned Ovid. They tend to go on about cultural tidbits. Gloria Graham is just glorious in the big heat. Or hand over Kinsey's new book. I can't wait to read what he has to say about women. Or maybe the poet's words echo from my grade school days. Something I was made to memorize but forgot. Something buried deep, dislodged as I watched my life turn to ash. I should be screaming. I should be crying. Maybe it's shock. How did this happen? Was it my fault? Did I forget to turn off the stove? Did Roger fail to unplug the toaster? He can be so forgetful. What about the bathroom heater? The towels dangle too close to it. I've noted it before. Maybe it wasn't our fault, but carelessness from another of the building's residents. A janitor ashing his cigarette in the oily bucket, or a housewife neglecting her curling iron. Or maybe it's a defect of the fused box, old mouse-eaten wiring, or spark from colliding elevator cables. It's a chilly evening, but I'm sweating, drenched. Roger isn't inside, of course. Sure, he said he would be home this afternoon, but he would have stopped the fire if he were inside. He would have used his strong runner's legs, dashed into the hall, yanked the extinguisher from the wall, and choked the flames with sodium bicarbonate. His naval training during the war and his ability to stay cool under pressure would have served him well. No, he's not there. There's no way. Maybe he's out securing work. We need him to find a new job. A damn good job. Or maybe he ran to the store for dinner fixings. Just in case, as a cosmic barter, I lean into the horror. Take my things, I say to God, to the universe, but just don't take Roger. In my mind, I fly up nine stories and turn back time an hour. I'm standing in the middle of the room recreated by knocking down the non-load-bearing wall between the dining and main living areas. It's spacious, contemporary, and furnished with low-slung Herman Miller pieces and rosewood, upholstered in fabrics with bold geometric patterns. Against the back wall, my gift to Roger last Christmas, a record player cabinet filled with Sinatra, Miller, Cole, Gillespie, Davis, and Peggy Lee, and beside it, a brass Bar cart stocked with gin, martini glasses with delicate stems, and a big glass shaker that weighs a ton. We papered the far wall in a bold poppy print, modern and a tad garish. Absolutely a statement. It's there amid the poppies that I imagine the first flame emerging. As if the bright red-orange petals, inspired by their color, transmute into fire. The thick paper bubbles and hisses and begins to peel off. Strips float to the floor, igniting the thin layer of linseed oil polish and sending a ripple of bluish fire across the wood. The glass on the starburst clock, now circled with flame, cracks and pops out. The hand stops. 724. In the blast of heat, the upright piano makes a strange sound, like ghostly fingers swiping its strings. The photos Roger displayed on its top waver and topple over. They are black and whites of his dead grandparents, his mild mother, hard, vicious father, his grand-uncle, and his myopic sister, Rose Ellen, and him looking handsome in his lieutenant's uniform, and the two of us on a hike in Shenandoah National Park, pressing close, laughing, soon to be tugging at each other's clothes behind a boulder, giggling like damn idiots, aroused and happy, so happy. When the photo of us crashes into the floor, my heart lurches. Having gathered immense and uncontrollable energy, my imaginary blaze suddenly roars at me, bringing me back. Roger and I are good at imagining the worst. It's an occupational hazard. I remember a scene in our third Ray Kane novel, Seeing Red. McKee paused at the door, heat radiating out, inky smoke blooming from its keyhole, its doorknob a branding iron. What was inside was more than some maniac arson's delight, but a demonic force, sentient and vicious, poised to consume. Had Roger written that passage, or had I? I couldn't remember. Then I smell it, the actual fire. It's a greasy odor, like an old furnace, and then something sulfurous and nauseating, the scent of death, burning hair. How could I smell it so far away? Am I inventing it? Oh, God. The wall of numbness cracks and pain floods in. It's a sharp physical pain that knocks the breath out of me. My knees wobble and I lean into Philippa, who, at a felt 22, is 50 pounds lighter than me. She catches me, her grip assured as if she were bracing for this. My collapse and steadies me. She steps close, gazing at me, her eyes concerned and quiet, even a little cold. As the tremor dissipates, tears well up and I sob. Somehow, I know that Roger is dead.
5: Fantastic! You know, when you when you read um, from your story out loud like that, um, do you get a different perspective?
6: Yeah, you know, it's interesting um, because you do. You are sort of speaking through a character's pers- the actual sort of language, and it's not necessarily your own. I mean, of course, you wrote it, but it's you know you're living in a different perspective, so it's kind of weird, almost. Actually, I guess, like I'm being an actor, (laughs) Um, although I'm not an actor
1: (laughs) at all. Well, fantastic. Well, Al, at my end of the bar, enjoying a refreshing beverage, we have uh, Tracy Clark, who will be reading from Fall.
7: Yeah, I will be reading from Fall, my latest book, and I'll start at the beginning of Chapter 1. Detective Harriet Foster stared at her son's killer. She told herself that she needed to see if he'd changed in the four years since she'd seen him last, but that wasn't it. The test was for herself. Could she look at him and despise him less? Could she be in the same room again with Terrell Willem and not feel rage and contempt and an ungodly impulse to forfeit everything she was to end him? Willem was here for resentencing hearing. She was here to give another impact statement. Willem couldn't have appeared more disinterested as he sat sullenly in his tan prison two-piece, his paunchy body fueled by cheap prison carbs, squeezed into the county-issued uniform, its washed-out v-neck top, revealing a dingy white T-shirt underneath. Foster stood at the front of courtroom 211 at the Cook County Courthouse, her hands resting on the lectern, but Willem wouldn't look at her. Slumped at the hearing table, dull eyes focused on his feet, he was here in body only. His lawyer, a young public defender, outwardly nervous, sat beside him, fiddling with papers. Her bright green eyes, pixie cut, and rosy cheeks strangely jarring in a place like this. Willem, now 22, had spent the last five years in prison for murdering her son Reg. But the look on the young man's dark face, the sneer, the vacantness of expression, told her that five years could have been 50 for all the difference they had made. No change. Terrell Willem was the same. Prison, free, here, there. He would always be this, and only this. She might have been able to bring herself to lament the loss of his potential, were it not for the fact that this waste, had cost her the life of her 14-year-old son, her only child. But she was angry at more than Willem. Willem didn't amount to nothing on his own. Cognitively disadvantaged, he'd been failed by a lumbering, inefficient school system and by a mother who bore him at age 15 and hadn't a clue how to parent. Willem could barely read, had never held a job. He robbed and sold drugs and whatever else he needed to do to feed himself. His arms and neck were covered in violent tattoos that glorified death and killing and the gang to which he sold his soul. Detached from civility, devoid of remorse, Willem was a hard and nasty chaos machine with no conscience. Harry memorized his arrest record. She had learned all she could about Willem. She knew him by the sour twist of his thick, dry lips. Saw him in the false bravado that had him leaning back in his chair, his long legs spread wide under the table, as though nothing worried him as if he had no stake in what was being said or by whom. He was a child in a man's body, a child who hadn't been taught, who'd been allowed to grow as a destructive weed might, and live like a feral dog that lurched undeterred from impulse to impulse. Willem had wanted Reg's bike, so he took it, but that hadn't been enough. He had to take Reg, too. Wasn't no big thing. People die all the time, dog. So what? Gave me the bike, but he was too slow giving up them good shoes, though. It's what he had said at trial. Then he chuckled, revealing two gold teeth. Foster still heard that chuckle in her nightmares. There'd been sneers at the trial, too, and eye rolls, more blank looks. At what point during the proceedings, Willem had appeared to fall asleep and had to be nursed awake his, as his lawyer. A bike or a life, shoes or a wallet, all the same to him. Harry stood with her back straight, her eyes on the killer at the table. She'd worn a black suit, her badge clipped to the belt at her waist, but hidden. Her gun, too. Both were tools of her trade, tools that defined her, marked her, steadied her hand, resentencing That's what they were here for, because Willem had been just 17 at the time of her son's murder, a lawyer, not pixie-cut, had successfully argued that he deserved a break on his sentence of 99 years in a day, no parole. Willem's side was trying to whittle his punishment down to 75 years with parole on the table. Foster was here to stand for Reg. Willem was damaged goods, lost half a lifetime ago to abuse, neglect, and depravity, and she wanted to serve, wanted him to serve every minute of those ninety-nine years, even the day tacked on behind it. She wanted Willem to die in prison on bad days, and there were many. She dreamed of being there when he did. She glanced around the old courtroom, its dark wood and brass fixtures hearkening back to a foregone era, when Al Capone or one of his associates might have strutted along the marble floors on their way to the witness stand. The room felt close and hot as heat hissed out of the heavy vents. The old school building's answer to the February chill outside the heavy leaded windows. Harriet had been here a million times or more testifying in cases, doing her job, locking up killers like Terrell Willem. But what happened next in the rooms like this wasn't up to her. They were always lawyers and judges, always Willems. She scanned the room, glancing over the handful of observers that included her ex-husband in the first row and Willems' mother and two sisters across the aisle in the back as if they'd chosen the farthest point to sit for fear of recrimination. William's family looked just as hard, just as broken as he was, she thought. The meanness, the misplaced defiance, the confusion on their faces, an explanation for Terrell, but not an excuse. The room smelled of sweat and furnace and oiled leather from her holster and Ron's and the guards who'd brought Terrell in. She wasn't naive. She knew abuse was generational. She knew poverty and race played a part, and the lack of opportunity made up for the rest of it, that crime and gangs became the reality when there was nothing to counterbalance them, and that boys like Willem almost never made it past 30. She knew all this because she was charged with fixing it, or at least arresting it. She turned back to Willem, having memorized every line on his face from before. His was the last face her son had seen, and knowing that made it difficult for her to sleep. Willem could have taken the bike, the shoes. He didn't have to take Reg, but he did. He did because Reg meant nothing, because life held no so great value, because imprisoned or free, 99 years or 75 was all the same. When you're ready, Miss Foster, Judge Cereski said gently. He didn't have to identify her as a cop. Everyone knew it. But she wasn't here in that capacity. She was here as the mother of a murdered son. She pulled her eyes away from Willem and stared at the statement she'd written. The edges of the single sheet of paper curled and damped with her sweat. These were her reasons for wanting Willem to say stay where he was. 99 years felt like justice, 75 felt like compromise.
1: Tracy, that was great, very interesting. And as I'm listening, I'm saying to myself, you presented some depth of characters there. What was your inspiration for them?
7: Well, I wanted to start this book out uh, with Harriet uh, beneath the badge. She's a cop, and she's working the mean streets of Chicago. But she's also got that other half of her, the, the wounded part. And I wanted to start the book off there. This is not Harriet the cop. This is Harriet the mom grieving Uh, this Harriet, the mom who is filled with guilt and a sense of responsibility and loss. And so that's where uh, we start the book. Uh, And then I I sort of dump a body somewhere and she has to go to work. But that's where she is uh, emotionally and as a person.
1: Well, it definitely comes out in in what you read. So I think everybody should read it because you grabbed me. Uh, Thank you very much.
7: Thank you so much.
5: Well, we've got the great mystery writer, Connie Berry now, and she's going to be uh, reading from the new book coming out, A Collection of Lies, and it's part of her Kate Hamilton Mysteries. I think it's book five, so uh, welcome, Connie.
0: Well, thank you for having me. It is book five. It's coming out in June, and I'm going to be reading from chapter one, and I'll tell you, um, I can't do a really cool British accent. I actually can't even do um, a vaguely believable British accent, so you're going to have to imagine that, but Kate has just married her fiancé, Detective Inspector Tom Mallory, just being the operative word since a run-in with a drugs dealer almost sabotaged the wedding, but now they're honeymooning in Devon, and they're contemplating a possible career move for Tom from policing to nice, safe, private investigations. Thursday, January 2nd, the old Bell Inn, Devon, England. Murderers can be perfectly ordinary people. Tom was stretched out atop, atop the duvet, bare-chested and wearing his Navy sweatpants. I'm serious, Kate. They're often people you'd never suspect. Small irritations build up, and one day they just snap. I once arrested a pensioner for stabbing her neighbor to death with a garden trowel because she was sure some of the weed killer he was spraying had drifted onto her prized roses. I started to laugh, and my coffee went down the wrong way. That's not funny. He looked slightly hurt. I thumped my chest, trying to breathe. I'm sorry. But do you think all newlyweds chat about murder on their honeymoon? To be fair, the topic was hardly surprising. Tom was a detective inspector in the Suffolk Constabulary. But I was an antiques dealer and appraiser. Not a particularly treacherous profession. I was leading up to something. Tom picked up a blue folder. We'll be on Dartmoor tomorrow. It's time to think about our investigation. Listen to this. Of all the crimes in Devon's history, the most mysterious may be the case of Nancy Thorne, a 30-year-old lace maker from the lost Dartmoor village of Whittacombe Throop. Wait a minute. I interrupted him. What do you mean by lost village? How can an entire village be lost? Lots of reasons. Climate change, for one. Settlements that thrived during the medieval warm period were abandoned as the climate cooled. And during World War II, there were villages that, in other words, you don't know. I gave him a playful shove. Keep reading. Tom grinned. At 1 a.m. on the night of 7 September 1885, Nancy returned to the cottage she shared with her sister, a seamstress, in a state of incoherence. Her hair was disheveled, her dress was torn and soaked with what appeared to be blood. For reasons never explained, neither the village doctor nor the local constable was called. Witnesses testified that Nancy arrived as usual for the six o'clock service at the village church, but left soon afterwards. The vicar, Edward Quick, assumed she had been taken ill. Later, concerned for Nancy's well-being, he called at the cottage where her sister Sally told him Nancy had not returned home. When Nancy finally did appear, she claimed to have no memory of the events of that night and could offer no explanation for the blood on her frock. The police launched launched an investigation, but as no person in the surrounding area had gone missing, and no body, human or animal, was ever discovered, the case was closed. Nancy died at the age of 46 without ever speaking of the events that occurred that night. Tom closed the folder. Well, that's the case. Please don't tell me we're expected to solve a 140-year-old murder. No. This is what Nash says. The Museum of Devon Life, a small but highly regarded institution led by Dr. Hugo Hawksworthy, formerly of the Mary Rose Museum in Portsmouth, has received a sizable grant for a new exhibit to be called Famous Crimes in Devon's History. Your assignment will be to establish, if possible, the provenance of the dress. Did it really belong to the lace maker in question? Are the stains on the dress human blood? Can we identify the blood type or retrieve any DNA material? Tom looked at me over his glasses. What do you think? Interesting, I said in an offhand way, trying to hide a smile. I was fascinated, and Tom knew it. Sounds a lot safer than policing. Hmm, yes. He lay back and put an arm under his head. Leaving the force is a major decision. Our lives will change. We've already made one life-changing decision. Spending the rest of our lives together, that's turned out pretty well so far. So far? He gave me a cheeky smile. Jury's still out then. The real test will be when we get home, figuring out who cooks and who does the dishes, who squeezes the toothpaste tube from the middle, that sort of thing. I glanced around our suite. This isn't exactly real life. The old bell? Tom frowned. If I remember correctly, you called it nothing in the middle of nowhere. I meant it as a compliment. I know you did. He reached over and touched my cheek. The old Bell, a former coaching inn near Oakhampton, was perched on a rise overlooking a wild rushing stream. No fancy spa, no gourmet restaurant with tiny portions artistically presented, no signature cocktails, just comfortable beds, excellent cooking, gorgeous surroundings and privacy. Frankly, I was getting a bit restless. I needed a challenge, and a blood-stained Victorian dress sounded right up my alley. A a discreet knock on the door sent me scrambling for my cashmere robe, a wedding gift from my friend, Lady Barbara Finchley Ford. Coming, I pulled the soft fabric around my body and tied the sash. Breakfast, madam, came a voice from the hallway. I'll leave it outside, shall I? No, no, I opened the door. Come in. A middle-aged woman in a black skirt and white apron entered, balancing a large tray. We don't like to disturb our honeymoon couples. It's no problem. I can see that. She raised an eyebrow, probably assuming our matching black eyes and the gash on Tom's forehead, souvenirs from an encounter with a drugs dealer just before our wedding, were the result of a domestic dispute. Placing the tray on a table, she started to leave, then turned back. Always best to talk things out, my loves. We waited until the sound of our footsteps died away, then collapsed into laughter. An hour later, the coffee cold and our plates nearly empty, we were still in bed. Thinking about Nancy Thorne's dress, Tom asked. Actually, I was thinking about historical mysteries in general. Uncovering the past. Everyone involved is long gone. No crime, no danger. I never learn. We should think about making a move, Tom said. I suppose so. I looked over at his profile, the straight nose, the angles of his cheekbones, the slight scar near his ear. Life miraculously had given me a second chance at love. A whole new life with his charming, gifted, gorgeous, irresistible. Come on, then, he started to get up. I pulled him back down. Oh, not yet. So that's it. Add in a cybersecurity expert who lives and dresses as if it were 1855, an ex-juvenile delinquent turned tough-on-crime MP, a Romani family who camped on the moor, local legends about a deadly peatmire, and Kate learns that historical mysteries aren't always nice and safe.
5: Well, incredible. You're just keeping this series going. How, how do you keep the uh, excitement of, uh, of the series going and with the surroundings being in the U.K.? Uh,
0: well, I... I heard one time actually from my agent that uh, when you establish a location like um, Long Barston in Suffolk is the primary location of the series, that your readers want to stay there, but that you're allowed to kind of take a little detour, maybe every three books or so. So I'm taking my little detour to Devon, so I have um, some new characters. And, and I think actually what keeps the series going... Uh, is is change in the characters. They can't be just static. There, there has to be something new, some decisions to make. They have to learn things. They have to grow. They have to develop as people. And so um, I, I had this overarching kind of character arc in mind, and um, there's still are some things that Kate and Tom have to learn, so hopefully they can keep going for a little bit.
5: Oh, I'm sure they will. Well, thank you very much. we interrupt our
1: programming this is a national emergency important details will follow are you prepared? legacy food storage the best way to protect your family is by being prepared go now to legacyfoodstorage.com use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off quick go Having some delicious cocktails down here. And we've been joined by James D. of Hannah. And if I'm correct,
2: James, you'll be right reading your short story. This will take up serpents. That, that is what I'm reading. I'm, I'm a contrarian among the group today. This is a short story I wrote a couple of years ago. Just a quick hit in, in and out, so to speak. All them bodies crowded under the tent mixed with July humidity. It's a heady brew, the air thick with sweat and the hope of salvation. Not that anyone notices because Brother Josiah has been speaking in tongues for the past five minutes and this enraptures the crowd. They are hearing words intended only for God, the Bible states. They eat this up, Josiah told you once, but you gotta start slow though. On a week-long revival, you can't blow your whole wad that first night. Give them a little at first to get em talking to the neighbors. By the last night, there's a full house, and you're talking gibberish, and they'll think you're a prophet. He took a long slug from a pint of Kentucky gentlemen. That's where the big money comes in. Tonight's packed, just as he promised. Folks jammed in tight, spilling out across the county fairgrounds where you set up. Brother Josiah's traveling show of faith. You joined last summer after you got out of Green River. The fire bug you bunked with telling you about his cousin. The road preacher always looking for help. Hiring ex-cons is what they call good optics, Josiah said. Shows we're committed to helping save souls. The truth? Ex-cons understand what's happening here. They're not about to let a little faith get in the way of a good thing. The plate passed around once already. Came back heavy. Cash. Checks. A mix of jewelry. Some junk. Some pieces that'll fence out nicely. It makes you think about the faith it takes to pull rings off your finger to give it to a stranger because you believe that's what the Lord commands. To be fair, Brother Josiah is charismatic as hell, young and movie star handsome, and you've got to have a bunch of suckers beyond just the hardcore old school believers. Those bastards will die someday. And to keep this working, there have to be fresh faces in the crowd. That's how you end up with these little fundamentalist girls out there their long hair and denim skirts to the ankles and innocence in their eyes makes you remember how you used to believe right up until the moment you didn't you start thinking about the blonde girl in alabama last month the one brother josiah said had a blessing from the lord who he called a jubilee spirit josiah's hand on her shoulders they knelt and prayed and everyone called to the holy spirit for his will to be done you watched it from josiah's camper Smoking a cigarette and wanting the night to be done. The service ended and the crowd dispersed. And the next time you saw that girl, she was coming out of the camper. Her hair a tangled mess. Her face wet with tears. Josiah in the doorway, no shirt on. Said they'd been studying scriptures and to make sure she got home safe. Tonight, Brother Josiah raises his Bible into the air. And the Gospel of Mark does say they shall take up serpents into their hands. And it will not hurt them at all. That's your cue. It's the Friday night grand finale. What everyone's coming to see. You bring the boxes to the front of the tent. Josiah offers thanks and a wink no one else sees. He's been using the same old cotton mouths for years. Got from another preacher. Pulling the same grift. Aged and defanged and you keep them hungry and lethargic. They're harmless as milk snakes, Josiah says all just for the show. He reaches into the box, brings out the first snake, and lifts it above his head. It writhes and hisses wildly, more activity than Josiah's ever seen. And there's a second of surprise in his eyes, just before the snake sinks fangs into his flesh. You know how you'd let those old snakes go, watching them slither off to freedom before you found two fresh cotton mouths. Ones that were young and full of themselves. You think about the way that young girl cried as you drove her home. The tears you cried once you stopped believing. And as the frenzy of the congregation swells, the serpent strikes Josiah again. Hallelujah.
1: Yeah, I was following along online as you were reading, just to be a, just to be a cheater. <laughs> and uh, and and I'm going. I'm thinking to myself, and I'll ask you the question. I have so many questions on this because I'm looking at short stories myself is uh, what do you want people to get out of this short story using the
2: symbolism that you used? That's a really great question. Um, you know, I really think we need to question everything. Uh, I, I come from, you know, I grew up in eastern Kentucky, southern West Virginia. I uh, grew up a lot in fundamentalist religions. And I, I know the power that uh, that can have. And you see it even today. And uh, the, the way that that religion plays a role in politics today, and I really think the best thing you can do is question whether or not it, it should have that role and the role that it has in the control of other people's lives.
1: Well, I mean, you you can see the visual visualize that, and you can hear the words, and there's some there's some depth there, and I'm greatly appreciate the small small amount of space. So, thank you very much. Thank you much, Mr. Joe Clifford,
5: and he's going to be reading from "Say My Name." Now, this is a true crime novel. So it's a true crime that never really happened or did it? Tell us. Uh,
8: Yeah, that's the uh, the premise. I was going to do that introduction, but thanks for saving me the time. Uh, Interpret that uh, term loosely. I'm going to do something uh, a little out of the box here and read the author's note, but I think you'll see why when I read it. When the Rogers twins, Annabelle and Ava, were reported missing the summer of 1985, we expected they'd be found. Of course they would. Kids didn't go missing from Berlin, Connecticut. Berlin, like the one in Germany, pronounced with the accent between syllables, like furl in preposition. And God forbid local residents hear you pronounce it the other way. Ours was a nice little New England town, ensconced from the horrors, such as kidnapping and murder. That was the stuff of books and movies. Annabelle and Ava must have forgotten to tell their parents about plans. They had to be at a friend's house went for lunch. Lost track time. The girls would return home soon, safe and sound. It would all be one big misunderstanding, except the girls never came home. Police were called in, search parties sent out, eyewitness testimony taken. There were several suspects, but no arrests made. Now, nearly four years later, their bodies still haven't been recovered. I'd like to say nothing changed after that summer. The dark, quaint, charming New England town remained an idyllic village where young families moved to escape the scourge of the big city, I'd like to say that my best friends at the time, Jim Case, Ron Lamontain, and especially Jack Lacko, weren't forever affected. Life courses permanently altered. I wish I could tell you that the girls going missing in no way played a part in my moving west or in my staying gone as long as I did. Just I'd like to tell you that my return has brought solace and peace and reconciliation with the past. From a certain point of view, maybe I could sell that narrative. I write fiction, after all. It's not like I've sat around a dark room for decades, slowly drinking myself into oblivion consumed by the unknown fates of a couple girls I knew for a few years when I was 12. And yet there's been an element of that summer in everything I've done since. My interactions with people in the industry, my interpersonal relationship with friends and lovers. Pushing 50, I've made many bad decisions, most of which I can't blame on that hometown tragedy. But their abduction certainly played a part in my decision to write crime novels. With over a dozen books published, I've enjoyed success as a mystery author. I've hit several bestseller lists, some books have been optioned and translated into foreign languages. I was able to tour Italy a couple winters back, that was fun. Writing has earned me a big house on the hill, critical acclaim, money, life for me has gone on. Still, despite these reassurances, the horror of that summer continues to haunt, and its lingering specter has become a permanent part of who I am. I may have left that town, but that town never left me. So much of our fears is rooted in the other. This is particularly true in small, insular towns where everyone looks the same. Acts the same, believes the same. I still remember the story my mother, God rest her soul, shared when I was a young boy about that poor woman from a tiny town not unlike ours who was visiting New York City. There in a subway bathroom, a gang of thugs confronted her, demanding her wedding. ring. When the woman refused to surrender, the gang cut it off, finger and all. It wasn't until much later I realized that, like that uncle or family friend who lost his arm by dangling out the car window, the story wasn't true. It was make-believe, a cautionary tale designed to scare us into believing, behaving, living in fear. This is how I viewed the big city growing up. It's a dangerous, godless place for the dangerous, godless people. It's why we stayed hidden in the suburbs, concealed by the lush green valleys of summer long after the winter days turned them cold and barren. I spent most of my life in the big city, and sure, it's hard to be a saint there. But it's evils and transgressions, handling comparisons of sinister elements that can lurk in a small town where everyone knows everyone's secret, so somehow no one sees a goddamn thing. It's not 1985 anymore. Annabelle and Ava Rogers' bodies most certainly will never be recovered. Like my mother, like my friend Jack Locko, those young girls are dead. My mother and Jack died of cancer. My mother was 53, Jack, my age, late 40, still their passing was natural. sad premature, but natural. What happened to the twins was not. Their story is an abomination, an anomaly, an apparition, a thing that should not be but is. Growing up, I never would have believed it possible. Even as a crime writer who minds the darkest depths of the human psyche, I never could conjure something as ghastly as the truth I uncovered writing this book. I'd feel better if the product were the result of my twisted imagination, except it is true, all of it. What I discovered writing this book I wish I could unlearn, long to go back to that original spin, that fear of the others instilled by my mother, go back to believing that monsters hide in closets and live under beds, but they don't. They reside in our hometowns, hiding in plain sight. They shop at the same stores, eat at the same restaurants, we pass them every day. We don't recognize them because they look just like us. Thank you. That's the author's note in introduction, to
5: Say my name. I can relate to the uh, dealing with uh, true crime and, and an event that happens around you and it stays with you. How, how do you deal with that when you write the book, uh, you know, throughout it? How what, What's your experience? Uh, well,
8: I mean, just remember, I'm a fiction writer who lies, so um, <laughs> take... Take all of that uh, into account as you're, as, you're, as you're reading this book, and when you get to the end, I think you'll see uh, how, I, how I get away with calling it a true crime novel. It's um, sort of outside of a genre, really. Um, uh, you know, you follow where the muse takes you, and this one took me into a weird place, and uh, all the people in the book are real, and um, yeah, you'll have to wait to see how it ends up.
1: Well, wow, fantastic. Uh, you notice it's getting crowded down here, uh, and it's crowded with all good people, including Rob Osler, who uh, is going to read from his book Cirque to Slay, which I believe is the uh, book two of the Hated and Friends Mystery series, which will be coming out in early May. Am I correct?
3: That's right. Off to the Circus. <laughs> yes. So I'll be reading from chapter one, uh, Then Came the Fire. And since it's chapter one, I'll just start at the beginning. Great.
1: Looking forward to this.
3: A single spotlight flashed on, revealing a woman in white tux and pink top hat standing in the center of the ring. With the fading of the symbols, crest, she asked for a volunteer from the audience. I glanced around the massive tent's interior to see who would be brave enough to join Mysterium's famed magician, Hennedy Osaka, on stage. The next instant I was blinded by light. Despite us sitting in the rafters in the last row, a spotlight, as if magnetically drawn to big personalities, managed to find my best friend's raised hand. Wonderful, the magician announced, lifting a tapered white sleeve toward Hollister. Please come down, madam, and join me in Mysterium's ring. Like a kid rushing downstairs on Christmas morning, Hollister nearly tripped as she raced down the aisle while an assistant wheeled a large cabinet onto the otherwise empty stage. After a bit of repartee and fanfare, Hollister was ushered into the cabinet, her mohawk brushing against its ceiling. With a grand flourish, the magician slid the door shut. Intensive music throbbed as she spun the large box around in a circle. The rotation completed, she paused dramatically before throwing open the door. Oohs and ahs from the 300 people in attendance filled the tent. Hollister had vanished. I knew it was a trick, but still it freaked me out. Another volunteer was recruited to the stage to examine the cabinet inside and out. Seemingly satisfied there was no Serena Williams-sized woman hiding inside, he hurried back to his front row seat to the audience's applause. The magician closed the door again and wheeled the box in another 360. The music crescendoed. Tiny blonde hairs on the back of my neck and arms shivered in anticipation. I leaned forward in my seat. Kennedy Osaka dramatically paused again. I swallowed hard. The entire tent went silent. She flung open the door. The audience's collective held breath gave way to an eruption of applause and cheers of delight. My bestie had suddenly reappeared, now wearing an outfit identical to the magician's. Never mind that on Hollister, the white spandex made her resemble one of those inflatable snowmen people set in their front yards at the holidays. Hoot, hoot, I howled. Not only was the trick next level abracadabbering, but I had never, ever seen Hollister wearing anything other than black. She was escorted backstage and within minutes hustled back to our seats in her own clothes. The quick change and steep ascent had her breathing hard. That was a blast, Hayden, she said. I can't believe you didn't go for it. Then again, I suppose you volunteering was long odds, huh? Yes, somewhere between you and Heels and me anywhere near basketball. After a brief musical interlude to settle the crowd, the ringmistress, a tall, slender woman in a sultry black gown, introduced the next act. Against the low rumble of a timpani, she touted the group's acrobatic awards collected from competitions around the globe, each accolade heightening the anticipation for the spectacle to come. Again the lights dimmed. To a chaotic sweep of spotlights across the stage, she announced, And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Mysterium's Tent of Splendors, from Romania, and celebrated the world over, Adrenaline. According to the program notes, an Estonian rock band, appropriately named Estonia, replaced the orchestra on the raised stage. They served up a screeching metal riff as the four members of Adrenaline entered the stage from the four different entrances used by the audience. The guys cartwheeled down the aisles, performed handstands on the arms of chairs, and somersaulted into the ring. Wearing the costumes I had seen in the program, studded black harnesses, and essentially tight black boxer briefs, they took turns performing increasingly complex twisting flips as they raced across the stage. Next came a routine with chairs, which culminated in one guy doing a handstand on a wooden chair held by another who stood on another guy's shoulders who perched on the shoulders of the fourth guy. Then came the fire. Five flaming hoops descended from the catwalk high in the tent's pitch and hovered above the stage at heights of about three to six feet. One by one, each guy sprinted across the stage, jumping feet first or leaping head on or flipping in a tight spinning ball through each hoop. Up in the ante, one horizontal hoop was positioned about 20 feet from a trampoline. The guys took turns bouncing to unnerving heights and through the ring of fire as they performed complicated aerial stunts. It was like watching Olympic platform diving, just live and upside down and with fire instead of water. The mini show concluded with Adrenaline receiving a standing ovation. The evening then entered its final phase, a cake and champagne reception with an opportunity for us VIP guests to have pictures taken with cast members. Hollister and I had only sport tickets, thanks to a friend of a friend, despite qualifying only as P's in that acronym. For its sold-out month-long run, Mysterium had set up its extravagant tent just south of Seattle's downtown. The mash-up of cabaret, magic, and aerial arts, with a Michelin dinner thrown in, had had been taking America by storm. Hollister gave me a shove. Those adrenaline boys are here for a whole month. Go get a picture with them. While you're at it, get a phone number. I replied with a groan. Hollister knew I would never do any such thing. Hanging around her I'd lost some of my natural shyness, but never would I match her boldness. More comfortable watching from the sidelines, I occasionally gave in and followed her, feet dragging and cursing under my breath onto the field. And yet I'd be lying if I didn't admit the Hollister's friendship hadn't been good for me. Because of her I'd at least partially broken out of my shell and discovered courage I didn't know I had. But there were limits, and one was hitting on a Romanian Adonis in short shorts.
1: Excellent, Rob. Very visual, though, very descriptive. I could see what you were writing. I greatly appreciate it as a reader, listener. I'm sure that was important to you as you were writing it, especially when I think about you going to your second book in the series. How was it going, writing it from the first book and going to the second book?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, at least for me, well, it's only the first time I've done it. So I, I think it's going to be the most challenging from the first to the second um, because you have to, you know, tell enough of the story, kind of recap enough of the the story of the b- first book to give readers grounding in who the characters are, and at the same time acknowledging that a lot of people, or at least hopefully a lot of people, read book one, and you don't want to bore them with, you know, kind of rehashing a story that they, you know, that they've already read. So I think that's the trickiest thing, is moving from one to two, is is making two fresh in its own work, at the same time, you know, putting in enough enough reminders of, of story one, where where people who start at book two, you know, it still works as a standalone.
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right on that. I think you uh, the way you wrote the, this first chapter, me listening to it, I want to say I need to go get the first book. I'm not going to start on book two. So I'm sure other people will coming out March 5th, I believe. That's right. Are you prepared? Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to legacyfoodstorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go!
4: If you're a fan of stories that make you afraid to turn the lights off at night, then you will love Moonless Nocturne, Tales of Dark Fantasy and Horror. From attorney, former Air Force officer, special agent for the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and Bram Stoker Award-winning author Hank Schwabel, Moonless Nocturne is a chilling set of ten tales that offers an exquisite and impressive showcase of the author's talents that are sure to entertain and intrigue readers who love a good thrill. With an introduction by the Iconic F. Paul Wilson, Moonless Nocturne is a gourmet platter of both red meat and rare delicacies, not only for aficionados of horror, mystery, thrillers, and suspense, but any connoisseurs of fantastic fiction. It's inventive and original. This collection has already been optioned for television and film by Lone Tree Entertainment and is certain to appeal to fans of King, Barker, Matheson, and Jackson. It's not the dark that should scare you. It's all the things that lurk there. Order your copy right now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Moonless Nocturne, Tales of Dark Fantasy and Horror. From author Hank Schwabel. Morning, face.
5: You get it when you don't sleep well. This is what happened to Linda. Morning, guys. Good morning. Ah, what is Hi. that thing? It's me, Linda. Oh, my God, it talks. Right! No, it's me, Linda, from HR. It looks hungry. Save the children. Save them. Whoops. Stay back. I've got mace. Oh, they're my moving. It's called beauty sleep for a reason. And there's never been a better time to get some.
3: Get 20% off
9: IKEA Sultan mattresses. IKEA, love your home.
4: Now back to the show.
9: And we're back. You're listening to KCAA 106.5 FM, Los Angeles 102.3 FM, Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. So welcome to Martino movie reviews. I'm Dave North Martino. Okay, so today we're going to talk about Creed 3. Yes, I braved the movie theater for you <laughs> to check out Creed 3 2023 and to see if it was any good. So let me give you my thoughts on Creed 3. First, let me just say that I ran down to see this movie, I hadn't even had lunch. And I said, Well, you know, I'm gonna get a medium popcorn and a drink. And it came to seventeen fifty. <laughs> so I was like, What? What is going on? I used to balk when when they would they charge like six bucks for a soda and a popcorn. Seventeen fifty. Get a meal for that. Fine, fine. I'll stop complaining. <laughs> anyway. So of course, Creed three is a continuation of the Creed. Franchise, which has been excellent. Now, of course, that is a spinoff of the Rocky franchise, starting in 1976 with the original Rocky. And I believe ending in 2006 with uh, Rocky Balboa. So as you probably know, Creed 3, 2023 is a sports drama film. It stars Michael B. Jordan, right? Who's an Amazing shape. And this is his directorial debut. And he does fine here. It's great. But there are some problems, and we're going to get into that. It also stars Tessa Thompson as his wife, Bianca. And she's excellent here, just like in the last two installments. I mean, the perfect casting. Jonathan Majors, he was in Lovecraft Country. He does well here playing the villain. And then we have, of course, the incomparable Felicia Rashad back again as Adonis Creed or Donnie as his adoptive mother. But I don't think they utilized a lot of the cast as well as they could have. And I think this is comes down to script problems. Now, Sylvester Stallone gets a producer credit here. And there's been a lot of back and forth, whether Stallone's blessing was given for this film. I had... I had reservations even seeing this film just because Stallone, he created Rocky. He created Apollo Creed, who is, of course, the deceased father of Adonis Creed. And, you know, there's some wonky things that happen in Hollywood. You know, I know he wished them well. But he didn't, he either didn't want a lot of involvement. And, and I don't think this picture suffers because Rocky isn't in it. I think these characters can stand on their own, but I think Stallone's sense of storytelling is what we're missing. Stallone knows this type of film. He basically invented it. So it would have been helpful to have him on board and helping with the story. Now at the start of this film, Adonis Donnie Creed, who is played, of course, by Michael B. Jordan. He's riding high, right, in his career. And then an old friend returns, played by Majors, and it threatens everything he's worked for over the years. So as I've said, Creed Three has a stellar cast, but unfortunately the script is weak and there are some pacing issues. I found myself sometimes sitting and fidgeting. And in a movie like this, that shouldn't happen. Now, Michael B. Jordan, he is in the prime of his life. He's in great shape. But it feels like for most of the film, he's in the background in his own feature. Now, I know he's up front, but hear me out here. Adonis, Donnie, right, spends his time promoting a fight between Felix Chavez and Victor Drago. And he spends a, a lot of time remembering or reminiscing about his troubled past. Jordan has amazing charisma. We need more of him. We need more of him as a fighter. We need more of him even as a mentor. Again, with his directing, I don't have anything bad to say here. And I do look forward to seeing what else he he does behind the camera. Now, Tessa Thompson, as Bianca Taylor Creed, she has great chemistry with Jordan. Bianca is having some troubles in her own career, some changes as well as Donnie's having changes. And their problems really should intersect, but that doesn't happen here. She really should be kind of a mirror to what's going on in his life and and happening in his career. To me, their characters seem a little bit disconnected, even when a tragedy brings them together. There's also Mila Davis Kent as Amara Creed. And I feel she's perfectly cast. She's great as the daughter. And they give her a conflict. But it's very short, and it's never really resolved, and it's very muddled. I wonder if there were some scenes left on the cutting room floor. And it would be great if they would reassemble those. I'd like to see them in a director's cut. Now we have Jonathan Majors's Damien Diamond Dame Anderson. Interestingly enough, his character has a lot in common with Mr. T's character, Clubber Lang, in Rocky 3, with more of a personal connection to Adonis. And I think that could have worked better, but they really try too hard to make Damien... They make him like a Rocky-like underdog, but... You don't want to root for him. And then they go kind of by way of Rocky Four a little bit, but they kind of pull back. Then we have Felicia Rashad as Mary Ann Creed. And she's she's uh, playing Donnie's adoptive mother. She has since the, the first movie. She's Apollo Creed's widow. Now, Felicia Rashad is always a welcome addition here. Did you know that she's the sister of Debbie Allen? I had forgotten that. But I think, again, there's something missing. Her interactions with Donnie would usually bring tears to my eyes. I would usually be blubbering. I got a little misty-eyed during some of their exchanges, but it just, I don't know. I, I didn't feel the emotion this time. And I, had, I was nervous. I was nervous because before I ran down to the movie theater, I said, you know what I have to do? I have to get some Kleenex, right? I have to get tissues. But I didn't. I forgot. It didn't matter anyway. It didn't matter. But really, a film like this is supposed to pull at your emotions. Supposed to pull at your heartstrings. Supposed to, and it's supposed to lift you up. supposed to make you feel something. I just wasn't getting that from this film. Speaking of that, the last two Creed films weren't just moving. They were also fun. They were exciting. It was a good time. So, is Creed 3 worth the watch? Yes. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you watch it in a theater, but it is worth a watch when it comes to a streaming service, especially if you're a completist. This film wasn't terrible. It has all the elements. It's fun to see the characters again. But am I going to purchase this film? I'm not sure. Maybe if there's a director's cut. Creed 3 is still in theaters. Now, this is my story doctoring section. And let me just say that truly, if you really look at Rocky, Rocky, the Rocky movies, and even the first two Creed movies, what we're dealing with is the hero's journey. You have the hero, the hero sees a dragon, like in the fourth movie, Drago, and knows he he's got to fight the dragon. So he gets his friends together, and he finds a wizard, and the wizard gives him some magic, in this case some boxing magic, and then he prepares, he overcomes obstacles, he fights the dragon, he marries the princess, and he becomes king. That's the story. And all you have to do is kind of follow that. But what I say is don't stray from the formula that made these movies successful. It should seem like he's going to lose everything. And then focus on the love story that's ha- the heart of a movie like this. He should still be losing until love saves him at the end. Creed 3 wasn't a knockout for me. But even with all its flaws, it earns a solid three stars. It's watchable, if a little lackluster. I'm Dave North Martino from Martino Movie Reviews. Full written reviews are up at our website. Now back to Alan R. Warren on the House of Mystery. On KCAA 106.5 FM, Los Angeles, 102.3 FM, Riverside, and 1050 AM, Palm Springs. We leave no listener behind.
7: You've been listening to the House
4: of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. The show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.